0: Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 3. We will study the chapter tonight, verses 1 to 17, Second Chronicles chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. These are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length in cubits of the old standard was 60 cubits and the breadth 20 cubits. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and its height was 120 cubits. He overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold of parvaim. So he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length, corresponding to the breadth of the house, was 20 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits, and he overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of gold for the nails was 50 shekels, and he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. In the most holy place he made two cherubim of wood and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim together extended twenty cubits. One wing of the one of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and its other wing of five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub. And of this cherub, one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and the other wing also of five cubits was joined to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim extended twenty cubits. The cherubim stood on their feet facing the nave, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. In front of the house, he made two pillars, 35 cubits high, with a capital of five cubits on top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars, and he made a hundred pomegranates and set them on the chains." He set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, the other on the north. That on the south he called Jachin, that on the north, Boaz. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, these records from so long ago, and yet you have not changed. Your sovereign plan has not changed. We're at a later point of development, in fact, a far more blessed one. And yet, Lord, help us to understand how this speaks of you, of your son, of of worship and salvation. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. When Harry Truman occupied the White House in 1945 as America's 33rd president, he found the old mansion nearly falling apart. Soon afterwards, his wife Beth was holding a gathering of the Daughters of the American Revolution when the Blue Room chandelier nearly fell on them. It turned out the president was taking a bath in the room above above, and his tub almost came crashing down among the ladies. That would have been interesting. The next year, his daughter Margaret was playing piano in the East Room when the piano did fall through and landed in the private dining room below. Now, a study was conducted. It showed that the building, the construction of which began in 1792, was literally in danger of falling down. And so Truman supervised the grand reconstruction of the executive mansion that occupied almost his entire second term in office. Well, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and this is around the year 959 BC, Israel's wise king began constructing a far more important building. What made Solomon's house uniquely significant was not its size, its dimensions, or even its glittering decorations, but rather its occupant. Second Chronicles 3 begins, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Now the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem was intended for the dwelling of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Just as Truman's redesigned White House was configured to serve the needs of the president and the executive branch of the government, so the temple was built to meet the purposes of God. We'll discover what these purposes were by going into the temple Solomon built, walking through its chambers and gazing around through the chronicler's record. Well, one of Harry Truman's aims in rebuilding the White House was to make it a comfortable place for the dwelling of America's first family. And likewise, Solomon's temple must be a dwelling fit for its divine occupant. If you enter someone's house, particularly if they designed it, and you look at the decorations, you consider the layout, you can learn quite a bit about the kind of person he or she is. Well, since this was the house of the Lord, the temple tells us what God is like. Now, starting in verse 3, we discover the dimensions of the temple using cubits of the old standard. Under that standard, a cubit measured about 18 inches. The later new standard would be just a little bit longer. And the length of the house was 60 cubits. That is about 90 feet. And its breadth, 20 cubits, 60 feet. And we discover that the, the house had two main rooms with an ornate entryway the entrance hall, which he calls the vestibule in front of the nave, much like a narthex in our churches today, that was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house. Its height was taller than the building itself. It was 120 cubits. Now, so far, the temple indicates that its occupant is a sovereign of order and purpose. The building would go up precisely according to his specifications. Solomon built the temple according to the layout that was presented to him by his father David as the Spirit of God had conveyed them to David. That's all recorded in chapter 28 of First Chronicles. And we find in those detailed instructions, which, by the way, included details like how much gold was to go into every nail, we find in this way that even the little things that God does have great significance. The implication is that God's people should be careful, as Solomon was, to observe everything taught in God's word. Solomon fulfilled every instruction of the temple plan. Now furthermore Hebrews 8 verse 5 says the tabernacle and then the temple were a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Now this is not to say that the temple that God's throne room in heaven has the physical dimensions that we see in the temple but rather that the temple was designed to symbolize the dwelling of God as it is in his true heavenly abode. The dimensions given to Solomon for God's house in all of these ways show design and purpose. It's, he's a sovereign God who works according to plan. And this is true of the entirety of God's word. Well, we are told then of the temple's dimensions, but then we are arrested by its rich interior. We, we are intended to ask ourselves, what kind of person lives in a house entirely lined with the finest gold? And the chronicler goes on and he says, and Not merely the walls and the doors, but the temple's beams and thresholds were the pure and rich gold of Parvayim. Verse 6, Parvayim was in Arabia, it was renowned for the highest quality, the purest gold. So here's the question, who lives in such a house? Well, the answer must be a person of surpassing glory, worth. And I think the word we're really looking for is beauty. A person of great beauty who would dwell in these adornings. Andrew Hill comments that the vast gleaming wealth of this gold represent the beauty and the majesty of the royal throne room, a fitting dwelling for the Lord, the eternal king of glory. And so he's a sovereign God who works according to purpose, but he is a God of a glorious beauty who dwells in gold. Now the idea behind the sheer golden beauty of the temple, not to mention the precious stone on the walls, was that those who entered the building could gain a glimpse of this essential attribute of God, his beauty. Now, of course, God himself was not seen in the temple. That's a point Solomon made in the previous chapter when he told Hiram of Tyre that God couldn't dwell in it. He's actually the infinite God, the, the God of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in the building. But seeing the shining splendor of the temple's interior would convey the idea of God's majestic beauty. David, who prepared these designs in advance for his son Solomon, expressed the intention of the temple. In Psalm 27, verse 4, he said this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, this is what I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Of course, the true beauty and the infinite majesty of God could not be seen in the golden interior of this temple, but it can be seen in the one who came to fulfill what the temple began, namely God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see the sheer beauty of a pure and lovely character, and Jesus' beauty, we're told, was not in his outward form. Isaiah 53.3 says it's not an outward beauty, but rather it's in the compassion he extended to the weak and weary, that the mercy he showed to the lost, his saving ministry that healed the sick. And the beauty of God's love was most fully displayed in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to redeem his people from their sins. Now, you and I live in a culture that has corrupted the idea of beauty. Now it's merely a seductive outward form. And, and so God wants to reflect his beauty in our lives as they are changed by the beauty-giving love of Jesus. In fact, what Peter wrote to Christian wives can be applied to every Christian when he spoke of an inward beauty that dwells imperishably in the hidden person of the heart. 1 Peter 3, 4. You see, God wants his beauty to be etched on our character and our conduct so the world will know what true beauty, his beauty, really is. The loveliness of a pure life that is humbly devoted to truth, mercy, and grace. Bearing the love of Jesus to others in sacrificial deeds. Now we can know that what the temple showed about God, the beauty of the temple, is to be replicated in our lives because the New Testament says that the church, standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ, is being built as a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling for God by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 21 and 22. One thing we should notice from the chronicler's description was that the temple became more and more beautiful the further in one went. The vestibule was something. It was overlaid with gold, but the nave, by the way, the nave is the main body of the church. It's not a word that is tend to be used today, but it's the, it's the, the main room. And it was cypress covered with fine gold. It was adorned with settings of precious stones. But then the innermost room, the most holy place was overlaid all around, verse eight says, with 600 talents of gold. Now, 600 talents comes to about 45,000 pounds of pure gold. That is a staggering amount of the purest gold for a room that is just a little bit larger than my office. You see, the message conveyed is that the closer to God you come, the higher conception of, of beauty you attained, the more of his rich majesty you apprehend. Oh, let us draw near to him to see his beauty. Now, a further attribute of God displayed in the temple is his holiness. It shows his sovereignty, his beauty, and his holiness. Now, holiness means that God is transcendently above every thought or conception of our minds. He is totally separate from creation, and especially from sin. Now, God's holiness is revealed in the temple in a number of ways. The first was the cubic shape of the most holy place. That's the inner room where God himself dwelt. It was 20 cubits in length, breadth, and height, 30 feet cubically formed. Now this shape, shining in the richest, purest gold, signified the perfection of God's being. The eyes of those approaching were to realize that they were drawing near to deity in all its transcendent holiness. Now a second way we're pointed to God's holiness are these images of cherubim. Cherubim are the awesome angels that attend God's throne to do his will. Sadly, it's actually medieval art that made cherubims into goofy little chubby uh, angels with wings and arrows. The cherubim in the Bible are the mighty attendants of the throne of God. Now interestingly there's only 17 verses in this chapter it's a very economical description the first Kings six version is much longer and yet in such a brief account we get whole four whole verses about the cherubim the images of cherubim that are present in the holy of holies verse 10 says in the most holy place he made two cherubim of wood and overlaid them with gold now these Angels would stand behind the ark of the covenant when it was brought in. They would face the veil towards the nave, and their wings would touch on the interior. And on the outside, they would brush against the golden walls of the holy of holies. Now, here's the question: Why so much detail on the posture and the placement of, of each of the wings of the golden cherubim? It, that takes that alone takes up three verses. Well, the answer would seem to be that while we cannot see God in his holiness, we can see the golden images of his most holy attendants. You see, here's the question. What kind of God is attended by these mighty angelic powers, their presence filling the expanse of the throne room? It is a sovereign God of surpassing holiness who is worthy of the highest awe and praise. Well, the temple's third indication of the holiness of God uh, involves its relatively small size. The temple wasn't very big. It was smaller than most churches today, smaller than our church. Uh, Today, you might be able to fit 200 or so people in the ancient temple. Why so small? Well, the answer is it was not intended or designed to contain many people. In fact, even in Solomon's day, the vast, vast majority of Israelites would never see the splendor inside the temple that Solomon built. Only the priests, not not even all the Levites, only the priests of the line of Aaron were permitted ever to enter God's house. And the priests themselves had to wear a uniform that depicted a righteousness that they themselves did not possess was the need we'll see the holy garments that was because they did they themselves didn't qualify unless they were there was a a righteousness placed upon them moreover the inner sanctum the most holy place could not be entered by any human at all only one day each year one person Israel's high priest could enter the holy of holies and he came in only after making a sacrifice for his own sins and he carried the blood of atonement for the sins of the people Now you see the fact that the temple was not designed for crowds of visitors reflects the moral aspect of God's holiness. Gerhardus Voss writes that the Lord's holiness involves not merely that his nature is stainless empirically free from sin but that he is exalted above any possibility of sin in him as the absolute good evil cannot enter. And so people can't come into this place. Why? They are sinners. He is holy, holy, holy. That's the, the song of the cherubim and the seraphim around God's throne. Even when Moses begged that he could just glimpse the Lord's glory, the Lord answered in these words, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The prophet Isaiah, seeing his vision, it was a vision of, Of the Lord's glory in heaven. Just a vision. And there were the seraphim. The burning ones. Crying out. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah responded in anguish for his sin. Woe is me, he cried. I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6 verse 5. And not only was a temple not designed for crowds, but the separation between God in his holiness and man in his sin was further symbolized by the thick veil that was hung between the Holy of Holies and the outer room. Verse 14. And he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen and he worked cherubim on it. Well, what kind of God? Here's what we're going to ask. What kind of God lives in a house like this? What kind of God lives behind a thick veil, even from his consecrated priest? A holy one, a thrice holy one, an infinitely holy God. And we're reminded by the cherubim who were woven into that veil of the guards that God had set at the entrance to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had fallen into, into sin. Genesis 3.24 says at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so while Jerusalem had the glory of the fact that God's temple was built in their city, that same temple was constructed with barriers to their entry on account of their sins. Unless the temple should reveal another attribute of God, then it spoke a message of doom the people were unworthy to approach this holy god well fortunately the chronicler's record of solomon temples reveals a final at- attribute of god that gives hope to sinners made desperate like isaiah in the presence of holy glory we said the temple revealed god's sovereignty his beauty and his holiness but it also provided a message of god's grace Now the grace of God is not in the temple, at least not in its construction, but where it was built. Look back at verse 1, it tells us that the temple was erected on a site made sacred by two events from Israel's past, one in the life of the patriarch Abraham, the other from King David. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now the reference to Mount Moriah recalls Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord tested Abraham's faith by commanding him to go to this spot, Mount Moriah, and there to slay his son Isaac. Isaac. And the two went, they climbed up the banks and they arrived at the top of Mount Moriah and there Abraham constructed an altar. And while they were going up the mountain, Isaac asked his father, Genesis 22, seven, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He didn't realize that he was the burnt offering. But Abraham answered in faith, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Genesis 22, verse eight, he was trusting that god would provide a substitutionary atonement for his beloved son but but he got to the top he built the altar he piled the wood on no no instructions have come from god so he ties his son to the altar and he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son genesis twenty two ten. and at that moment an angel cried out staying abraham's hand and, and looking he saw a ram caught in a thicket and it was offered as a sacrifice in Isaac's place, Genesis twenty-two eleven to 13. Now Abraham named the place, the place where Solomon would later build this temple, Mount Moriah. By the way, it's this verse that tells us it was at Mount Moriah. He named the place the Lord will provide, Genesis twenty-two fourteen. 14. Now one might think that he would have said the Lord has provided he didn't have to slay his son. The Lord had given a ram. The Lord has provided. But you see, through faith, he saw that this was just looking forward. His whole experience pointed forward to an even greater sacrifice, that God would provide this, not not slaying Abraham's son, but taking his own son and providing him as a sacrifice for all his sinful people. That was the episode connecting the temple to Mount to Abraham, The reference to Mount Moriah. Now the episode involving King David is recorded in 1 Chronicles 21. David had sinfully conducted a national census because he was glorying in his military might and this angered the Lord. And the Lord struck the nation with a deadly pestilence. And uh, for three days the Israelites were dying. 70,000 men at all perished under a pestilence. 1 Chronicles 21.14 and then an angel with a sword approached to destroy Jerusalem, the city. But the Lord had mercy and he, he stopped the angel. And the place he stopped him was at the threshing floor of a man named Ornan, the Jebusite. First Chronicles 21.15. Well, David came there. He saw the angel with his great drawn sword and he fell on his face. And God commanded David to erect an altar on that threshing floor and to sacrifice burnt offerings for his sin. First Chronicles twenty-one eighteen to 26 The Lord received these sacrifices. He sent fire from heaven to consume them and commanded the angel to return his sword to its sheath. Now understanding God's purpose, David declares here shall be the house of the lord god and here the altar of burnt offering for israel first chronicles 22 11 22, uh, 1 now what does it say that god directed that his house be built on this spot mount moriah where a sacrifice was provided to abraham and the threshing floor where god's plague against sin was arrested by atoning blood Well, the temple's location reflected the grace of God toward the sins of his people. Andrew Stewart comments, the temple was built on this site to continue the work of atonement. It was to be the place where sacrifices were to be offered by sinners under the wrath of God. It was also to be the place where sinners were assured of forgiveness because of the death of the sacrificed victim. Well just as any house tells us much about the character of its occupant the temple built by Solomon depicted the sovereignty the majestic beauty the perfect holiness and the saving grace of the true and living God. As such it also tells us about the character of Christian worship very briefly. As a place of worship through the ministry of Israel's priests, the temple communicates, even in its construction, a theology of worship. Of particular note is the imagery from the Garden of Eden. Look at verses 5 and 6, the nave, the, the, the sanctuary. He lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. Now, presumably the precious stones were set as murals in the walls for the palm trees or the cherubim. Moreover, verse 16 says the vestibule had pillars decorated with a hundred pomegranates. Now, the parallel account, the longer version in 1 Kings 6, tells us much more. The cedar wall of the nave was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers before it was lined with gold. Likewise, the temple doors were carved with images of cherubim palm trees and open flowers. 1 Kings 6:18 and 35. Now, why all this imagery from the Garden of Eden? Well, first we learn... That the original garden was conceived as a holy sanctuary for God's dwelling with man. Adam was a priest king to serve his God and father. And so to be admitted then into the Lord's temple was to return to the paradise of the presence of God. to To the presence and fellowship where God's blessing and bounty as creator would shine upon his people. Eden was a paradise of luscious fruit trees and precious ministers, minerals were particularly told about its gold, Genesis 2, 8 to 12. And so the temple was constructed as a new garden, a place where God's image bearer would dwell in the light of his blessing. And the same can be said of the Christian church in its worship. Genesis 3.8 spoke of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Where can you go today to have the presence of the Lord giving a sweet, refreshing blessing? Well, it's in the worship of the church and its gathering. God is present with us in holy blessing, especially in the ministry of his word, in our prayers, in the sacraments. He, as it were, feeds our souls from the tree of life in heaven. The images of cherubim in the temple, those attendants of God's throne, remind us, moreover, that our worship is to be God-centered. It's to be about God. It's to be God-directed. We have the cherubim here. They're the throne attendants. God is there. And the temple shows what God is like. And so our worship must respond to God as he is, to his sovereignty, his beauty, his holiness, and to his grace. As the angels sing to his glory above, our worship is to be directed to God in praise. Whenever Christian worship focuses on the preferences of visitors or even of the church members, it loses sight of what the temple had to say about our calling in worship. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we now are royal priests in Christ, called to offer obedient service and God-glorifying praise in his holy place. Well, lastly, we see the temple and its teaching of the Christian faith. The Chronicler's Record concludes with special notice to the doorway. But Here's the question, who was to enter the door? Not the people, almost all of them, were barred from ever even entering into the temple. Not even the priests, unless they could be properly garbed and, and garbed in righteousness that they didn't actually possess, it showed that they didn't belong there except by God's dispensation. Who then would come through these doors to fulfill the meaning of God's temple? Well, the Bible's answer is provided in the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to Jerusalem and its temple. Here was the one who possessed in himself the right to pass through the doors and and if he had wanted to stroll right past the veil into the holy of holies. He possesses the divine nature in his own being. He bears a holiness equal to that of God in his spotless character and blameless life. And so Jesus was worthy to come back through these gates and yet he declared that he came to tear down the temple, that he would build another after three days. What he meant was the temple was not built for him as a physical structure to enter, but it was about him. It was a picture of him and his coming removed the need for a building like this. You see, when Abraham foretold the Lord will provide on this mount, he spoke of Jesus appearing as a lamb of God whose Sacrificial death would take away the sins of his people. And when David offered burnt offerings at this place, he was looking forward not only to the daily offerings of Israel under the Old Testament that they would offer at that very place. That was true. But rather to the cross that would end the plague of God's wrath against his people forever. And of course, Mark's gospel records that at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom mark 1538 and the way to god's presence was finally opened once for all by his gracious provision in his son well for sinners barred from the presence and blessing of god like adam and eve who were cast out of the garden the coming of jesus to fulfill all this significance of the temple is the best of all possible good news John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And moreover Jesus by his atoning death and life giving resurrection has opened up the way to eternal life with God. And Jesus said I am the door. If anyone enters by me he will be saved. John 10, verse 9. The chronicler's account of Solomon's temple concludes with two freestanding pillars, very tall ones, constructed to stand on either side of the temple's doors. Verse 17, he set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, one on the north. On the south, he called it Jachin. The one on the north was Boaz. Now, The name Jachin means the Lord establishes, while Boaz means in him is strength. And these names tell us that if you will come to God, confessing your sins and entering through the door that is Christ, receiving life through faith in his Son, your re-entry into the paradise of his blessing is established by God himself in the strength of his infinite might. You can be certain that in Christ's name you will dwell in the blessing of God's peace forever and that even now God will come and he will take up his dwelling in you the writer of hebrews assures us of God's invitation to draw near to God to go in through the blood of Christ that he might make us a fitting home for the dwelling of God here's the invitation hebrews 10:19 to 22 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message we find in your word and the beauty and the glory that you revealed about yourself with this gold and this building. We thank you for the holiness that so glorifies you. You're a true God. You're a God of awe and wonder and perfection. And yet, Father, we're particularly thankful that you chose to place this building at the location that spoke of your grace. And Jesus came and he he did the work of your grace. And he opened up in his death, in his flesh, dying on the cross, the way into your presence. Oh, Father, would we come? Would we confess our sins? Look in faith to the blood of Jesus Christ. Ask if you will receive us. Oh, you have established it in strength. You will keep your word. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. We thank you in his name. Amen.